Welcome to the Little Brown Podcast. This is a podcast about uncomfortable past and precarious presence for Indigenous people. The Little Brown Podcast is about head takers, white burdens, and expensive G-strings. This is not the Igorot experience. This is our Igorot experience. We are beyond excited to be here and we are super thankful that you've taken the time to join us today. We wanted to start the podcast with a proper introduction of who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing this. I am Faye Marino, a writer, a performance poet, and a member of the Cancanae community. I was born in La Trinidad Benguet and raised between Baguio and La Trinidad. And sometimes we would go to my mother's province in Madaiman for weddings or funerals. I've been traveling on and off for the last four years, mostly around Southeast Asia, performing poetry. But right now I'm back in Baguio in the lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Maya Buenafeze, and my pronouns are she, her. I am a multicultural Igorot. I'm Ifugao, Itneg, and Ilocano from my father's side, and Tagalog, Fukien, Chinese on my mother's side. I was born on the floor of my grandmother's kitchen and raised a third of my life in Caloocan City, Metro Manila, Philippines, in the ancestral land of the Tagalog peoples. But where I really grew up as a young adult was in Baguio City, the ancestral land of the Ibaloe. I now reside in the unceded lands of the Moekma Ohlone, commonly referred to as the East San Francisco Bay Area in California. I am currently a professor, educator, with the Cultural Anthropology Program at the University of San Francisco, and I'm soon to complete my PhD in Cultural Anthropology and Development Sociology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. As for my community organizing work, I am a food and cultural events curator with the Rooted Recipes Project, a board member and community organizer with FACES, which stands for Filipino-American Coalition for Environmental Solidarity, and I am on the board of directions with Authentic Creations Publishing Apothecary. My roles in these movements are as a guide, builder, and weaver or connector to decolonize education, support youth leadership and development, and uphold food sovereignty. Hi, my name is Marie. I was born in Baguio, Philippines. My mom is Kankanay from Angkayan, Benguet, and my dad is Ilocano from Bayangbang, Pangasinan. I also just learned that he's also Tagalog and Pangalotot. Both my parents have Chinese and a family lineage as well. When I was five years old, my family immigrated to the Kingdom of Hawaii, which was illegally annexed by the United States government and is now known as the 50th state. I am a part of Decolonial Pinais, which is a group of diasporic Filipinos in Hawaii who are committed to demilitarization, decolonization, healing, and creative liberation. I also want to mention that the term Hawaiian only applies to Native Hawaiians, Kanakamali, the indigenous peoples of Hawaii. The rest of us are just from Hawaii or a Hawaii resident or local. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Alan Lumbaya Carino. And I'm uh, Ibaloi, but I'm also half British. Um, I'm a writer, academic, researcher, artist, 
and I now live in Baguio, but I, uh, which is in the ancestral land of my family, but I grew up in the UK, as you can probably hear. So uh, I studied there, grew up there, uh, studied literature there, um, but I've also worked a lot in, in international indigenous people's rights space. So indigenous rights at the UN and stuff like that. Uh, and then basically I felt a bit disconnected and in 2010 I visited Baguio um, and fell in love with the art scene here. Uh, it's sort of a big inspiration to me. So in terms of my own movements, I'm the president of the Baguio Writers Group and the Ubud Cordillera Writers. And the big focus really is the diversity of voices. I just want to try and encourage as many different indigenous voices as possible. So it doesn't sound like there's one indigenous take or one indigenous uh, voice. So that's why I wanted to be part of this podcast. I am Charlie Anarcia. I would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which I stand is the ancestral home and unceded territory of the Pelnen, an Ohlone tribelet who held the large freshwater marsh that was the western Livermore Valley and most of Pleasanton and Sunil Ridges. These are the lands located east of San Francisco City that I, where I now live as a settler immigrant. Before living here, I lived in the Philippines and grew up in Saudi Arabia. I was born in the mountain city of Baguio, Philippines, which I consider my homeland and my hometown. I didn't learn of my Igorot heritage until college, when, until my uncle, God bless his soul, told me that our family, my mom's side, is itneg by way of Abra. I am Ilocano and Tagalog through my father. In terms of movement, well, I consider myself a citizen of the world, having lived in three countries throughout my lifetime. I am largely unaffiliated, by, but I align myself with anti-racist, feminist, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and pro-disability. I am a student of abolition teaching, and I still continue to be a student in San Francisco State University in the master's program for speech, language, and hearing sciences, where I am training to become a speech language pathologist with a specialization in early childhood education. Hi, I'm Kervin. I'm Kantanay Ilocano. I struggle to identify from these cultural backgrounds pulled apart by the great roads of Halsema and Kenon. My mother and father both migrated in Baguio, where I was born and raised, and I'm now currently based in the Philippine capital in Metro Manila. I've been part of several community organizations based in the Cordillera, such as the Asia Pacific Indigenous Youth Network and the Cordillera Youth Center, before I became an adjunct at De La Salle University, where I teach Filipino world literature and Cordillera studies. I'm currently a member of the Baggy Writers Group and the Ubog Cordillera Young Writers, writer collectives that help thread my conflicting identities into an Igorot poetics. I'm now set to begin my postgraduate studies at Tingnan University in Hong Kong this fall, where I hope to continue my decolonization work among Igorot domestic migrant women activists, forwarding indigenous transnational movements. Thank you everyone for your beautiful introductions. I am so happy to be part of this network. Uh, Kervin, I wanted you to go last because I wanted you to talk about this podcast, The Little Brown Podcast. 
um, because it, the idea of this podcast mm -hmm. came from you. So maybe you could tell all of our listeners why and how we mm -hmm. got here. I guess I'd like to start with, you know, it really started from a very informal exchange that I had with you after an open mic via Zoom, um, where, you know, we, we got to talking about how we have so many stories to tell people and how sometimes writing poems or fiction about these things that we need to unpack, sometimes it's not enough. And um, we're trying to explore so many platforms to share these stories, but a podcast seemed good at that time because it was you know, barely into half of the quarantine and a lot of people have been migrating into digital spaces so a podcast might be a nice idea for us to flesh out all of our issues and these issues that we we want to flesh out are would really relate back to our own identities and the identities that we have that burdened us as writers as artists is this um, the baggage of being igorot in the contemporary times yeah. Um, we have, yeah, and I remember us sharing some, you know, like bits of uh, like anecdotes or exchanges from from different contexts of um, us either being questioned um, of our indigeneity or being, you know, constantly trying to prove that we are igorot despite so many limitations. Yeah. That's not really of our fault. It's really coming from a history of you know migration, um, education, and all of these things that compound on us right now. So on a personal level, the really the, the reason why I wanted to start this podcast is for me to 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 validate what I'm feeling <laughs> um, about being indigenous now with other people. And I know a lot of people in my network, a lot of indigenous scholars, activists, artists. Um, have been dealing with the same kinds of things. And although they express these in their chosen platforms, I want a conversation since a conversation really strips it down to, um, to this, uh, you know, a casual exchange or reminiscent of just, you know, sharing stories among friends. So that's why I really wanted a podcast for this. And, you know, it, it, it started this, uh, it became a very big project big in its scope and um, although I'm very grateful for Mayo, Charlie, Alan, Marie who we invited and got on board that we only thought of them being as guests but now um, came you know came into fully participating in this project and helping it build into something. For now I, I don't see how I don't yet have a final picture as to how this is going to, to look like in the future because there's so many things that can happen by just one by talking about just one topic. That's why it's a, it's an open space. A lot of we, we plan on inviting a lot of people to talk about the Igret identity. And I'd like to stress the fact that this is not, you know, this is not the resource material for understanding Igret history, Igret identity, but merely stories that we gathered from different experiences. And What's interesting about this podcast is that it's not just um, conversations from the homeland, the Philippines, or back in the Cordillera, but it's also pulling in these stories from the diaspora, which is, I think, largely um, silenced in the conversation of indigeneity, where indigenous peoples in the diaspora had to either relearn, adapt, or even forget 
their indigeneity because of so many conflicting issues in their 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 chosen um uh, quote unquote homelands. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think that's about it. Yeah, definitely. I love how it came together, how we just start you were like, I wanna start a podcast. And I was like, Yeah, let's start a podcast. And <laughs> we had all of these people in mind and oh let's invite them if they want to be like part of the podcast and everybody was very like enthusiastic and game to be part of it and it just shows how much there is to talk about um mm -hmm. yeah so i i also wanted to add um i wanted to put forward the slogan that i um i learned from another podcast all my relations and which was also used by the Australian Aboriginal movement, and it says nothing about us without us. So this podcast is a way exactly for us to unpack, unlearn, and relearn our Indigenous identities. It's about us as Indigenous people talking about Indigenous experiences. But you're right again when you say that this is not the resource material. This is our different and separate experiences and how we want to relate that to certain issues that we think are relevant right now. But I'd like for us to still go back to the Ely, which is, I think, something that needs to, to be said as early as the first episode. Uh, much of how the indigenous peoples in the Philippines, specifically the Igorot, uh, has been tribalized or were simplified to the idea of a tribe. And tribe is a word that has so many meanings right now. You have here tribe that would come from you know, old school anthropology, current anthropology that dismisses political systems. Or you have here tribe that now refers to certain social cliques. But tribe for us is um, um, I think the, the, the closest way to express our organization or our community is Ely, which is roughly translated as your community, your hometown, your relatives, or the space where you are welcomed, where you belong. Yeah, so we're really, like, I'm really excited about the topics that we're going to have in this podcast. We're going to talk a lot about um, material culture, about food, about tradition, about rituals, about spaces, basically about everything. And we're inviting all of our listeners, like if they have any sort of um, suggestions or any sort of like topics that they want to talk about to just um, share those ideas with us because we want this podcast to be a conversation. Thank you guys for inviting me onto this podcast because it's for someone that's in the diaspora and doesn't know much about my lin my uh, ethnic lineage. I really feel honored that you reached out to me because I don't feel so alone. So thank you for having me on here. Um, but I'd like to ask, where did the Little Brown come from? Where, how did you come up with that? So Kervin and I were thinking of titles that we could use for the podcast and we wanted a title to encapsulate like indigenous experiences, but we also wanted a title that would refer to Igorot because we are talking about like ourselves as Igorot and we can't talk about all of the indigenous people. Um, so we thought the Little Brown podcast would be perfect because it refers to the slang that was used by American colonizers in referring to us. 
the American colonizers, um, specifically Taft, he coined the term in um, his commission reports, and he said the little brown brother, referring to the indigenous people. So we thought that would be like the perfect kind of word that would mean like something that we were called and something that we were referred to and something that we're like, we're also going to unpack. So it's a very charged title. And it in the title itself has its own history. And that's what I like about the Little Brown podcast. Okay, so yeah. it's like a reclamation. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, and I think more than this is a reclamation to that term, it also informs current discourses surrounding brownness. Mm-hmm. The kayumangi equaling or being uh, as an identifier for the Filipinos. And I think that's also a little bit questionable because certain indigenous peoples who have darker complexion in the Philippines have been discriminated, which of course doesn't really make them less of a Filipino. So mm-hmm. this little brown, um, the little brown American, the little brown brother is something that we can unpack. And hopefully in all of the things that we're going to talk about, it's going to be part of our decolonizing project. This is all about decolonizing these uh, long-held beliefs, these um, stigmas, these uh, points of uh, um, racial examination, anthropologizing, and all of these things. I also like how when they said the little brown brother, it says so much about the benevolent assimilation that the American colonizers did to the Philippines. Like there's the word the little brown, which is... um, uh, demunitizing, which is mm-hmm. like <laughs> racist. It, you know, I mean to to say it straight, it's it's a racist term. And then to say brother, which is like it's it's a word <laughs> of subjugation, but then it's a word of like familiarity, and mm-hmm. that's the kind of um, relationship that we have to our American colonizers. I was actually really attracted to the title of this podcast because what it initially sparked in me was the um, song by Joey Ayala called Little Brown Man, which is basically a song he wrote um, during his um, first trips to America and um, kind of holding the experience of being Um, from the Philippines, and then also his observations about how people of color are being treated in America, um, and how those things kind of were um, connected to the experience of of exploitation, of oppression. Um, Like some lyrics from that song is like, you'll always be a second class citizen, even if you pay your taxes right on time. You struggled so hard to get that green card, working under the table, calling home when you're able to. Little brown man in the land of the giants, little brown woman on the white prairie, hold on to your dollars, don't go on no shopping spree. You got to save it all for the family. So that's why for me, like, yeah, the relationship of that experience of being in the diaspora also hits hits the mark with, with this title. We wanted to first define how we understood indigeneity and how we understand the word Igorot. 
So we're going to do a quick lightning round around the virtual room to ask everybody what they were taught um, about what the word igorot means and what they were taught about what it means to be igorot. So Maya, would you like to go first? Hi, yeah. Um, so because I mainly grew up in the Philippines or the Lonelands, um, and I didn't learn <laughs> about being Igorot until I was 18, um, all of the education that I got and also the common uh, knowledge around being Igorot that was told to me was that Igorot people wear bahag or g-strings, the women expose their breasts, the Igorot have monkey tails, live in trees, and are ruthless head-hunting warriors. I was taught that the Igorots are this way because they are uncivilized and undeveloped humans. I was taught that the Igorot are savage barbarians who the Spaniards were not able to colonize because the Spanish were unable and untrained to infiltrate the mountain regions where the Igorot lives. I was also taught that the Americans were able to colonize the Igorots through religion, mainly through Christianity and Western education because the Americans are our white saviors. I was taught these things while growing up in Manila, which is why my father did not tell me about my Igorot ancestry until I was 18. He did not think we would benefit from claiming our indigenous identity while living in Manila. My experience is similar to Mayo's in that I was taught differently about Igorots and that I didn't know about my own Igorot heritage until much later in life. Uh, but instead of being taught these things about Igorots, that being uncivilized, etc., actually my experience with learning about Igorots in Saudi Arabia in a Filipino school, it's like we were just a footnote. Okay, like, there's like a section probably in third grade, like these are the people that live in the Cordillera and this is how they look like. And then, okay, let's move on. That was basically the discourse. I had no idea. I have no clue. I had no clue going into going back into the Philippines um, as a student in UP what Igorots were, what what indigeneity was. It's just like I was just like these are all these were all brand new concepts to me, and I still am I'm still learning about this. You know, I still consider myself a student about my own history, about my own in indigeneity. Uh, so for me, I think different experience again because it was very matter of fact for me like it was just sort of I was raised up both of my parents indigenous people's rights NGO campaigners whatever it was quite limited like we'd visit we'd visit uh, the Philippines and I'd uh, hang out with my family or we'd go to this little church in the north of London where the Igorot UK would do their uh, get-togethers and it would be boring. Uh, there would be like kids, kids up on the stage singing Amazing Grace and all of the old Igorot uh, like aunties and uncles around and things. But it was quite, I guess, uh, I knew it about myself and I didn't really feel any angst over it, but it was also a little bit footnoted in my own life, I guess. Yeah, I think that's how I learned about it. So I think I learned all of the academic lingo, policy lingo, that kind of stuff, before any actual sort of uh, social immersion in it. 
So I learned about my lineage, I think around elementary school, because um, I was really curious about where where my mom came from. I knew we were Ilocano because we spoke Ilocano at home. Um, but I was also in this in this middle ground section where my Filipino friends without accents would tease the Filipinos with accents, uh, but I would go home to the Filipinos with accents. I was the one who didn't have an accent. So it was this middle ground where I didn't understand why are we calling them fobs? Why are we putting other Filipinos down when those are the people that came before you to set down roots so that you could have what you have now? Um, and then so like just digging into like, okay, mom, so I know where Lohano but you, where are you from? Are you Ulochana too? And she's like, no, but you speak the language. So what are you? And she was actually really quite surprised that I was interested in knowing as much as I, as, as, as much as I wanted to know, because her experience was, um, there was a lot of shame around it, right? She was from Mangkayan. She went to college in Baguio, but she also went to school in Manila. And a lot of her teachers there really talked poorly about Igorots and um, she even shared with me recently a story about when she went to go visit my my dad's family and she was putting um, she had just finished washing like our diapers and she was putting it up on the sampayan and somebody had asked her like oh did you did you wash it and like what kind of question is that of course you'd wash it and apparently somebody else in the area also married a Igorot woman and she was not washing the diapers she was just drying them so my mom was pissed you know she was like how you know first of all I don't believe that anybody would do that and the fact that they would think that just because I'm Igorot too that I'm that stupid or that un unsanitary to do those things my mom is a nurse she was one of the nurse the first nurses in um Baguio so um yeah like a lot of a lot of digging a lot of questions about who we are and then it was also met with a lot of the stereotypes in in the Ilocano community here in Hawaii too right like I remember an auntie at a church arguing with me that I was not Igorot because I did not have a tail and that she did research she had asked her family members and then they all confirmed that they have tails but there is no way that I could be Igorot and then when I finally I said well do you want me to show you there's no tail and she said no maybe because because you're just half so you don't have the tail oh my god that sucks I'm sorry Marie yeah but then on the other side, I had my older brother who was very adamant about, you know, we were never colonized by the Spaniards. So be proud of who you are and all those things. You just need one. You just need one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, on my end, I guess I've learned um, who the Igorot is and what we are not and what we could become, largely from my father who's the who's the Kankanae. And my mother, the Ilocano, is, uh, you know, um, a side that I know quite well because most of, um, most of the time when I was in, you know, in, in my childhood, we would spend more time in La Union rather than in Bugyas. Although there are fleeting summer, summers where we spend um, like a week or two weeks in Bugyas. But the rest of the year would always be weekends in the Union, going to the beaches, the resorts, all of these things. But 
um, I had this conversation with my father. I think I was in high school um, because I was educated uh, primarily in a Catholic school, originally an, an all-boys Catholic school from primary to secondary. I only experienced public education when I was in the university. So uh, when I was in the Catholic school, most of the Igorots there, they don't introduce themselves as Igorots. Um, what I know of Igorots is these are the students who would have weird last names and we would have teachers that are not from Baguio or who are from Baguio but are Tagalog speaking um, that would mispronounce our last names all the, all the time. And so that's one, we're silenced and other than we're silenced, we are mispronounced. Um, but through my father, in that exchange, he said that when he applied to that school where he asked me to enroll, um, he was denied um, a possibility of employment there because of how he speaks English. Although he speaks English, he has this accent where the E is a little bit hard. So the principal back then said that we couldn't hire you because maybe our students wouldn't understand your lessons. It's a little bit weird because he's not even teaching English, he's going to teach math. But that's not my point. I guess through discrimination that my father experienced and then me being enrolled in that kind of school, it continued. And um, the value of that story is my father ended up being the first lawyer from his community, a community of vegetable gardeners. And I think moving forward, that's one of the, the inspirations that they motivate me to finish graduate studies, to, to always inform my work um, actively, um, decolonizing and, um, you know, trying to still learn like Charlie. Um, so that's the Igorot. So other than we hunt heads, we wage tribal wars, we plant cabbages. Um, what I guess all of us know about ourselves came from very violent contexts. And that's a little bit unfortunate. And, you know, I'm sorry for, I don't know if I should be apologizing for the, you know, for all of these experiences because they should be the ones apologizing to us. But, you know, yes. neither here nor there. That's why the podcast is here. <laughs> I get yeah. it though. Yeah. yeah. No, I like, it's like, I'm sorry that this happened to us, but also like the person, the people who should be apologizing are not in this room. <laughs> can so we invite them? Can we invite them so that they can apologize? It's so, like, we've internalized it. Like, we don't want people to be uncomfortable facing this, but we have to. We have to have Yeah. It. For me, I didn't know that I was Igorot. The only time that I found out or learned that I was Igorot was when I was teased that I was Igorot. And before that, I just thought that the all the things that happened during my childhood was what was happening to other people's childhood and my childhood was growing up in my grandmother's house and her house was basically like a house of houses so all of her children lived there and so we lived there with our uncles and our cousins and she would hold all of these gatherings a lot of my memories were um, pigs being slaughtered outside of her house and her unfurling her woven blanket with old Spanish coins and there would be a prayer and all of us cousins would like bring the what what to our neighbors and we would play with the pig's tail and 
I didn't know the words to the practices that we had. I didn't know the word igorot was what applied to us or to me or to my family as an identity. So one of my favorite things to do in a classroom where we discussed like Filipinos in Hawaii or um, whenever people would tease the other kids because, oh, you're going to be dark like an igorot, I would stop the conversation and ask, have you ever seen an igorot person? And of course, bar- rarely would anybody say, yeah, I've seen one. Then I would say, well, you're looking at one. So cut that oh. out. You know, because the, the room would go from like laughing about igorot, ha 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 and then like, oh, somebody here in the room is igorot, and then the laughter dies out. So one of my favorite things was watching their face change because like you would not say that if you knew that somebody in that room was Igorot, but because they thought that nobody was present from that community, they could get away with all of this smack. And how old were your students? Uh, no, so sometimes it was like elementary school when they would tease each other. I was elementary too. And then I would do this all, all the way up to college. Well, yeah, you can see the indoctrination of like <laughs> indigenous wording starts very small, very young. And that's really unfortunate because you get to internalize that. Like on, and on top of the fact that it's anti-indigenous, it's also colorist. Yeah. You know, racist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anti-black. That's just not, mm-hmm. that's just not cool. I'd like but. to, to you know, um, share that experience with Marie. Since um, right now, or in the, in the previous terms as well, I've been teaching Cordillera Studies by way of literature. And so I would always introduce a topic, okay, this is the Cordillera, these are indigenous peoples, yada, 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 but not really introduce myself. So I'd like to wait for the reactions of these, my students, who are largely from Manila, who have not been to Baguio, or who've been to Baguio or Sagada, with, you know, with their brief wanderlust. But other than that, they don't really have like much experience about indigenous peoples and they don't know these peoples um, occupy certain territories in the Cordillera. So I would wait for their reactions, their very candid reactions that, um, that would you know, talk about you know, darkness, having tales, living on trees. But then I'll go to that part of my module where I introduce myself, that I'm Igorot. And yes, you would have these you know, stoic faces awkward silences but being self-reflexive about that gesture i feel that after me introducing myself as an igorot moving forward it now feels like a museum it feels like i'm subjecting myself to that kind of gaze yeah now you're like the token igorot so now that my students know that i'm igorot I'm, I'm being watched differently and I have to act accordingly. I don't know. I have to meet certain expectations. That's what's going on in my head. I also want to add to Kervin's um, kind of like experience, especially in the academic spaces. Like once I, it was really through, you know, my training in anthropology and getting it in Baguio and being immersed in like, you know, or being around Igorots, being in the ancestral homeland of my people too, that I was like, finally, like I get to learn about it. And so that was the whole reason I even wanted to take anthropology. I didn't see it as a money-making thing because it really is not. (laughs) It's not a (laughs) lucrative, uh, you know, kind of like um, credential to get. Um, 
it was really my way of finding a way to learn about my indigenous culture. And when I introduce myself now as like a native Filipina of, of you know, Igorot descent, and I say it in academic conferences and I say it in my work and I say it in international spaces, I've actually had people question, why did you introduce yourself as Igorot? Why did you introduce yourself as a native Filipina? And more often than not, I'm asked that by white scholars. And it just floors me every time because I'm like, first of all, I'm just like, I get to define who I am. I get to introduce who I am. That should not be questioned, mm -hmm. especially not by someone who is also not from my community. It's like, mm -hmm. yo, you're not in my community. You don't get to tell me who I am. Also, you're coming from a community that, act, that colonized my people. So even more so, you can't tell me who I am. But because it's like my profession, it's my job, there's that part of me is just like, Mayo, you know, kapit lang, hold on, don't lose your shit in front of them. <laughs> these, these are the people also giving you grants and scholarships, you know, so, so power. take it easy. But then I also tell them, yeah, I just tell them, you know, in the very, you know, professional i use my white voice <laughs> as many of us have to i say this is how i choose to introduce myself and i am doing research i'm doing work with indigenous communities that i've built relationships with so it's important for me to identify my positionality my mm -hmm. identity before i even start to talk about someone else's community or culture and in my brain i was like maybe you should do that too my question is, why do they even have to ask that question? Why do you think they ask that? Oh, wow. <laughs> why? What do you care? Why do white scholars? Because they don't. Because they don't. They feel, I, for me, the reason they ask that of us is because they're insecure because they don't, they don't identify themselves that way when they talk about their research, their studies, quote, unquote. They never, they never first acknowledge their positionality or lens. Yet we are taught to do that. I know I am, especially like every anywhere in the Philippines. Tagasan ka, you know who, where, what is your family name? Before you even tell them what you're doing, you gotta also let them know who you are. That's yeah. how we were taught. Yeah, mm -hmm. they don't have that in their culture. I mean. Up. They should be even proud that you just said where you're from so they don't have to ask that awkward question, where are you from? You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? <laughs> Marinos, it looks like she knows where are you from. But no, really, where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> like, white's not, white is not a country, so where are you from? <laughs> Maya, that's a really good point that you bring up that in the Philippines, that's a very important question, you know, like, where are you from? Where in the Philippines are you from? And even here in diaspora, the second you find out somebody else is from the Philippines, right? Where, like, where are you from in the Philippines? Yes. And then you make your connections that way, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so for the, I like, I don't know why they would ask you those questions, but like the insecurity or their feeling that it's irrelevant, you know, like there's so mm -hmm. many things that are so relevant to us that they feel is not. Me small. Me small. <laughs> mm -hmm.
that's their lens, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> you will and be discussing that. The reason why, like, certain white scholars um, would not really be compelled to introduce themselves that way is because of, like, this history of righteousness, the white man's burden. Like, you know, we are the ones responsible for you. So, you know, we don't get to, we, we, don't, we don't have that kind of obligation to always justify our existence because we are the ones who should justify our existence. And I think that's the whole, that's the whole game plan of colonization. And it still happens right now. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't want to call it microaggression because you know, no, it's very aggressive. It's, it's large-scale colonization over and over again in different contexts, in the academe, in, in any kind of social set, in, in your community, wherever you are, certain things happen that way. And you know, the reason why we're doing this introduction or how we got to know ourselves is partly to also tell our listeners that it's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to do for us to always justify who we are because, I don't know, it brings up so many issues to the surface, just like what happened. It started with a simple introduction, where are you from? But now, what made that place so difficult for you to live in? What made you get out of that place? What made you migrate? What made you deny these identities are all impinging on that kind of question and introduction. Yeah. I think it's also like when other people ask or non-Indigenous people or white people ask who we are and where we're from, it's a way of othering, which is a colonial tactic. And um, which is sad because for us, for Indigenous people, I mean, like from my experiences, um, when other Igorots ask where I'm from and where my family's from, it's a way to connect. Like, oh, your mother's from Madaiman, my mother's from Madaiman. We're like, we're part of the same community. So it's a way for them to be like, oh, hey, Kaili, like we're, we're together, we're in this network. So um, introducing myself or getting to know other indigenous people was like, this was a way, this is a warm way for us to get to know each other. And then like being confronted by non-Indigenous people, it suddenly becomes like a way of like alienating and, and you traumatizing. Yeah. Like it's, it's disappointing. Cause like, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to know, you know, <laughs> and they're like, Oh, we're just trying to differentiate you. <laughs> I'm just trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> Let well, me live. <laughs> I think there's also an aspect that it like becomes, well, Kirvin, you were saying you have to identify yourself as Igrat in front of the class and then they're looking at you different. And it also becomes suddenly you're thrust into the point where you are the representation, right? And so it becomes... Oh my God, yes. It becomes a catalogue of the ways in which you're lacking as well, right? Because obviously for me, uh, I've, uh, I lack language i lack a certain sort of history within the community actually listening listening even to all of you speak i realized that one of the big things i'm lacking is essentially i said i was raised matter of fact igorot like that's what you are that's what your identity is i wasn't really raised as filipino right i wasn't really i was igorot but it wasn't contextualized within sort of 
observation and categorization of other people from the Philippines because in the UK, most of my Philippine community were all also Igorot diaspora, right? So I think there's an aspect where it becomes suddenly when you're put in that point where you're identifying yourself, you're saying I'm the representative, then it gets you two ways, right? Because you're also accounting to yourself about your various lacking ways of representing, right? Yeah. Uh, like, uh, oh, I can't, not only like, you cannot represent all of the various peoples of the Cordy, but also you cannot represent on any number of different axes. Like it's, it's a lot to put on a person, right? Because <laughs> any one person is going to be, well, one phrase that I used once is, compromise they're going to have made compromises throughout their life and they're also going to be compromised they're going to be sort of in some way made incomplete or in some way uh by the way that they grew up where they cannot be a good representative right <laughs> it's like they cannot be the perfect representative So how do we understand the word Igorot now? And what do we mean when we say Igorot? How did we come to this identity? Um, for me, learning about what it really means to be Igorot, meaning how it's defined by people who are Igorot, um, was definitely from my experience in Baguio. You know, seeing people wear shirts proudly stating Igorotak, you know, bumper stickers on jeepneys saying the same, all the, the cordy humor. And also what I was taught in anthropology by like my Igorot professors, uh, Igorot is a pan-ethnic term that Igorot people didn't even create, uh, but we use it to refer to indigenous communities or ethno-linguistic groups of the northern Luzon Island mountain region that is called the Cordillera. But um, personally for me, Igorot is a shared or a collective identity as the indigenous peoples of specific areas within the mountain ranges. To me, to be Igorot was really summarized from Maclean Dulag's words, you know, like I, at this point, like for a lot of us who, who grew up or studied about, um, Cordillera resistance movements, you know, in this relationship to land and Makliing Dulag saying, you know, such arrogance to say that you own the land when you are owned by it. How can you own that which outlives you? And I really think that was like the first hardcore like definition for me of what it means to be Igorot, um, which is how you understand how the land owns you and you understand your responsibility to the land. For me, Igorot, or being an Igorot, is a work in progress. But I can definitely tell you now that it's a source of pride, <laughs> you know. Um, I really didn't know much at all until I stepped into UP Baguio, and I'm so grateful for having stepped into that institution where I get to learn where I'm from, at least from my experience, at least. It's like, there was a pride. There was pride surrounding being Igorot. You know, I didn't really grow up uh, 
learning about these stereotypes, these negative stereotypes about Igorot people. And even in my own family, living with my uncle and his kids, my cousins, and they would probably say that they're Igorot, you know, and so that kind of transferred on to me. It's very anecdotal, but that's how I feel. And I also connect with what Mayo says um, with relation to the land. And I, th I think that's something that I am uh, going through right now. Like being in indigent is learning, learning your connection to your environment. You know, it's, it's crucial. Our relationship with the land. We don't take that for, for granted at all. So for me, as someone who grew up away from our communities, our lands, our practices, our rights, our ways of life, it means cultivating those relationships and learning those things, continuing to ask my elders questions and continuing to return home as much as I can so that I can learn those things and pass them on to my son, to my nephews, my nieces, and everyone else who's spread out and the diaspora within our family. Uh, so what does Igorot mean for me now? I, like I said, I, I grew up sort of reading the books first and doing the conferences first and uh, knowing the policy stuff first, but not really living it, right? And then uh, actually living in Baguio. Uh, you know, there's there's this moment like late at night in the country music bars here where they'll be playing music and the people on the dance floor will, you know, get in a ring and start dancing. And it's the same dances that I found boring in North London church or whatever. And for me, it's sort of that kind of moment that's like, what is Igorot? It is, they're all doing different dance moves as well because they're all from all over the mountains. Um, and, and I think it's that kind of lived part of it that there's this moment at night when everybody is uh, drunk and they're not really thinking and they're just relaxing. And what is it that they want to express? They want to express who they are, right? And I think that is the drive for me that's the that's the thing that i want to express the kind of that moment where it's almost bursting out that this is who the people are yeah this is at, uh where cowboy town in la trinidad or diuliwa here near the market in baguio and yeah that's sort of that's the livedness of it and the the liveness of it that wants to come out and does come out. Um, and so that's sort of my touch point. That's my connection point for what is Igorot. The Igorot is not, you know, it's not a term of fixity. It will always change. It will always develop into something that we, you know, so many possibilities. That's why this podcast as well, um, part of its intention is to more than unpack all of these things with you also to, to try to understand what it is changing into now. 
Thank you everyone for sharing. Tune in on our first episode as we go into a deep dive of the word Igorot and our colonial histories. Please follow us on our socials at The Little Brown Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at TLB Podcast underscore. This is not the Igorot experience. This is our Igorot experience. Mm-hmm.